Here's David's good intentions, that David loves God. Look at, look at the context here. The king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Part of the main responsibility of the king is to protect the nation and protect the people. David is, has, has essentially driven out the Philistines. The Philistine threat has been essentially minimized under David's rule. And David recognizes all the good that God has done in his life. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. God had brought through David much. God's brought him to a place of peace. God has brought him into Jerusalem. Now the ark is there. And look what David says. See now, speaking to Nathan the prophet, I believe this is the first time you're introduced to Nathan the prophet, who's going to be this major figure who who, uh, David relies on for guidance from the Lord. I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And you see the disparity there. David recognizes, as is normal for a king, my house is very nice. A house of cedar. In that day and time, uh, essentially the best wood you can get, the best house you can have, would be a house of cedar. And, And the ark of God, in contrast, is in a tent. The place where we recognize this this represents the presence of God. This is going to be the center of the worship of God. I'm living in a nice house, and the ark is in a tent. One of the things you learn here about David right off the bat is his humility. And, And this is going to be further emphasized when we get down to verse 18, which we're going to cover next time. Tonight, we're going to focus on what God says. Next time, we're going to focus on David's humble response to the Lord. David's not selfish. He recognizes this disparity. And one of the things you learn about David is he is concerned with the importance of the worship of God. It's one of the great contributions of David to to our faith and to understanding how we relate to God. David recognizes the gravity of God and the importance of God's people worshiping him together. In fact, in the Old Testament, David is largely going to be responsible for ordering the worship of God's people. You're going to find very in-depth details in First and Second Chronicles, about how David specifically orders the worship of God's people. And furthermore, you have the Psalms, many of them written by David, for the, the congregational singing of God's people. Like the, the song we sang tonight, one of the reasons I love that song, Better Is One Day, I love that song because it's right out of a psalm. Psalm 84. And you see in that psalm, and in many others, David's heart to worship God. Better is one day in the house of God than thousands elsewhere. David says, the king says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather have the most menial role and be with the people of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. And and you see David's heart here. You see what's happened. The Lord has brought David to a place of rest and the palace has not dulled David's pursuit of God. And isn't that easy? Can't we see how that would be easy to to, to happen? David has essentially arrived. David's gone through struggle. David's had his times out in the battlefield. And essentially from a human standpoint, David has arrived by the sovereignty of God. God has brought him far. He's given him a house of cedar. He's made him king. He's brought him to Jerusalem. His enemies are at peace at this point. He's arrived. And David doesn't slacken himself. He doesn't rest. He, with zeal, wants to honor God. In fact, he's arrived to serve. 
Listen to what Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, says about this. Gracious, grateful souls never think they can do enough for God. But when they have done much, are still projecting to do more and devising generous things. They cannot enjoy their own accommodations while they see the church of God in distress or under a cloud. So what does David want to do? He wants to use his power, his authority, and his prominent position to serve God. This recognizes good intentions. And look what Nathan says. Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, now it's true the Lord is with you. But one of the things we, we find absent here, that if you've studied David's kingship up to this point, before David makes decisions, he consults with God. Not so here. Nathan tells him to go, and, and essentially, again, there, this seems to be obviously a good idea to build God a, a really nice house, right? What we would think of as the temple. And Nathan affirms that. I mean, this is kind of like pancakes for dinner. Always a good idea. Right? I mean, in my mind, there's just some things you don't have to pray about even. I mean, if I, if I get... If, if I get the invitation to go and preach a Sunday in Charles Spurgeon's pulpit in London, d- d- Chris, do you need to pray about that? No, I'll be there. This seems obvious, but it's not the case. This is not the will of God for David. And so we see in verses 4 through 7 the Lord's correction. Look at verse 4. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now you see what's happening here. What, was, what seemed to be a good idea is corrected by divine revelation. God corrects the good motives of David and Nathan. Interestingly enough, here you see Nathan the prophet tell David something that was in error because it's not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord. But this is from the Lord. And notice the difference in language. Look at the language in verse 5. Now here's the prophetic formula, thus says the Lord. See, Nathan had an idea that was in his own mind that in fact turned out to be incorrect. By the way, you don't look at the life of Jonah and be like, wow, Jonah's a really great model. And here you have another instance where the prophet says something that turns out not to be the case, which is quickly corrected by God. And notice the correction comes with the word from the Lord. This is what the prophet does. He speaks on behalf of God. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? Now keep that in your mind. Because that's going to be a prominent feature in this passage, this idea of house. uh, and, and, And again, we don't have the inflection. How does God say this? Would you build me a house? I think that's the idea here, the connotation. But what you have here is something you have all through 1 and 2 Samuel. And I don't have time to show you all the instances of it, but it's all through these books. The revelation of God corrects the reasoning of man. The reasoning of man here is, yeah, we should build God a temple. It's a good idea. The revelation of God corrects that. I mean, one of the easy instances of this is when Samuel the prophet comes to the house of Jesse. This is David's father. 
God's made it clear to Samuel, you're going to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the next king. And Samuel walks in and he sees Eliab, the, the, the military soldier, right? Kind of in the build and the make of Saul. This big, strapping, strong warrior. And Samuel thinks in his mind, oh, that's got to be the guy. Is Samuel right? No. Samuel's not right. God's revelation corrects the reasoning of man. Friends, one of the things we learn from this is we've always got to be checking our plans with the Word of God. Human reasoning and thinking is oftentimes and should be corrected by the Word of God. And again, here's one of the great advantages we have over David and, and Samuel. We have the Word of God. We have much more of the revelation of God than David did to correct our reasoning and our thinking. Uh, again, this, this is why David dancing before the ark is not the only word on worship. There's much more to that. Nothing wrong with David's heart. David is not wrong in what he did. But in so many cases, especially in First and Second Samuel, the reasoning of man is corrected by the revelation of God. We need to evaluate our plans even when there's good motives. David's motive to bring the ark to Jerusalem was a good motive. It was a righteous thing to do. But he didn't do it according to the word and was punished accordingly for that and suffered accordingly for it. In this case, they seem to have a good idea. And God's answer is, would you build me a house? Would you build me a house? Look at what it says here. One thing interesting in this is, look at verse 7. Where God's talking about, you know, I've been with the people of Israel. I've been moving around. I've been in a tent. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel? Meaning, this desire to build this house does not come from my word. It doesn't come from me. It comes from your mind, David. And notice what he says, with any of the judges of Israel, God speaks in such a way as to assume that David and Nathan know what he's talking about when he mentions the judges. You know what's interesting about that is? I think it's good evidence to show you that they had the book of Judges. How else would they know about it? Because they had the book of Judges. They had the word of God. God has been moving about in a tent with his people. Incidentally, this shows you God's not tied to some geographic location. God is tied to a people. He's tied to his people. And he's with his people. Verses 8 and 9, we see God's sovereignty in choosing David. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So now, now notice there's a transition here. First the correction, would you build me a house? I've never had a house. I never said anything about a house. And now, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. Now notice all through this section, the emphasis on what God is doing. This is the great emphasis in this part of the passage. is God's work. Look what it says in verse 8. It's just amazing. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This is the sovereignty of God. By the sovereignty of God, I mean God's rule over all. That God is all-powerful and almighty. The sovereignty of God is the exercise of his power in the affairs of man and in the creation. 
And you see this text, as so much of the rest of Scripture does, focuses on what God does. And notice the correction and the point here. God is the initiator, not David. I took you. Look at what it says there in verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And you think about the contrast there from being a shepherd, essentially one of the lowest positions on the social totem pole, to become prince over my people. How unusual and unexpected is that? Who goes from shepherding sheep and living like a wanderer out in the middle of the wilderness to being the king? How can that happen? God is how it happens. This is what God wants to make clear. Verse 9, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. This is about what God has done. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. It's not because of David's great military skill or David's great planning or administrative abilities. It's just God's work. God's going to do this for him. And of course, this language, I'll make you a great name, harkens back to Genesis 11. And you remember one of the ways man's sin played out in Genesis 11 was the Tower of Babel. And what did the people at the Tower of Babel want to build that big structure for? To make a name for themselves. Genesis 11. We want to make a name for ourselves. Then what happens in Genesis 12? I believe it's Genesis 12 too. What does God say to Abram? From Ur of the Chaldees. I will make your name great. Notice that intentional contrast from where man wants to make his name great to God saying, I'm the one who's going to do that. I'm going to make your name great. This dude Abram shows up seemingly from the middle of nowhere. Where is Ur of the Chaldees? Exactly. Good point. And the same thing is repeated here to David, the shepherd. I'll make your name great. How does a shepherd's name become great? God, unbelieving, secular, God-hating historians recognize the greatness of the reign of David. God-haters recognize historically because they have to the amazing reign of King David in the history of Israel. Why? It's because of the Lord. Now, something that that may be behind this, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's so prominent in the ancient world. There is a a tradition in the ancient world that that is clearly established. And it goes all the way back to Sumer, one of, the, one of the original civilizations in world history. And you can find it in Egypt, multiple times in Egypt. You can find it in Assyria. And there is a thinking that goes along with these ancient kingdoms where the king, because he's done so great, he's become so powerful, the king builds a temple for a god or for the gods, little g, And then, because the king has done all these amazing things for the gods, right? That's how paganism works. I'm going to do amazing things for these gods. Then the gods reward them in their mythology. That's the way paganism thinks. That's the thinking of the ancient world. Again, Sumer, Egypt, Assyria, pretty well established thought patterns in the ancient world. I'm going to do this for God. And do you see how God contrasts that kind of thinking here? Would you build me a house? You think you're going to build me a house? Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do, what I have already done. I took you from a sheepfold, and I made you prince. I'm going to make your name great. See, this is all about what God's going to do. 
and what God has done. It's about the greatness of God. It's about the greatness of God. It's not about a great man doing something for God. It's about a great God doing something for a man. Now look at what God's plans for his people are, beginning in verse 10. Again, back to this language of God at work. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Look at what God says about his people. He has plans for them. Notice what it says, and notice the language, verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people. This is all God's planning and work, and will plant them. Now think about that language. Have you ever planted something? What's that like? What role does the plant have in that? Not much. You're putting it where you want it, how you want it, when you want it, how deep you want it. Think about this imagery God is using for his people. He's going to put them where he wants them. And notice it's his people. It's him with his people, him protecting his people. Isn't it amazing the concern God has for his people here? I'm going to make it so they're not afflicted anymore. And I think that's probably, some, I think that's probably looking forward to future hope. Eternal hope for God's people. He's going to give them rest from all of his enemies. But he is going to care for them. That's the focus of this text. The focus here is God with his people and God for his people. It's not about what his people do for him. I have to use this example. This is going to be a long sermon probably, and rightly so. It's the Davidic covenant. God's concern here is for his people. If you take about the last 1,000 years or more of human history, now just think in terms of about 1,000 years or more of human history, and in your mind's eye, you travel to places like Europe, and you travel to Central America, and you travel to South America, in about the last 1,000 years, what are the greatest structures you will come across? What is the greatest building from the medieval era? It's the cathedral. If you go to London, what is the one of the biggest places that even the pagans want you to see? St. Paul's Cathedral. This is, a, this is an incredible edifice. If you go to Central America and South America, you can go to just... Um, it, you can go to a lot of places that are incredibly undeveloped, and what can you find in even undeveloped places unbelievable cathedrals and these massive buildings that you walk in and 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 again I share this because I love architecture and I love these buildings I think they're amazing but how different is that than the thinking of God God's concern is not for the structure quite the opposite don't you see that in this text you're going to build me a house his concern is to dwell with his people that's his concern here in fact, if you take the example of the massive cathedral surrounded by the, the poor people, where likely is God to be found? Right? The Son of Man, who is God incarnate, has nowhere to lay his head. He plants his people in security. And it's not about structures. The structures? You're going to build me a house? Do you know what the Bible says about the earth? Now, the earth is a pretty big deal from a human standpoint. 
God says the earth is his footstool. What's a man going to build for him? He built the earth. You can't rival that. But God does promise to make David a house. Now look at verse 11. At the end of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now look at, the, look at what he says here. Keep in mind, go back to verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? Then a bunch of stuff about the amazing sovereignty of God. 